you can take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1, titled today's sermon, God with us, as we continue to reflect upon the truths of our Lord Jesus coming as a babe. Let me pray for us and we'll, uh, we'll get started. Father, we thank you this morning and pray that this time would be sweet, that we would enjoy this time of learning and, and reflecting upon the truths of our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus coming to coming to be our Savior. As victor, he would rise from the dead and reign on high on your throne. We thank you this morning in Christ's name. Let me read our passage of Scripture this morning. I just want to remind you that Matthew is writing, and his theme really is to prove that Jesus is the King, that he has he's the rightful King to, run, to reign, that is, on the throne of David, the rightful King, the son of David. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew starts out the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David. Son of David. Let me read verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been born, or conceived in her, that is, is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his dream, or from his sleep that is, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. According to an article posted in the Daily Wire, the Norwegian Postal Service's idea of wishing people a Merry Christmas is to say that Jesus was conceived in an illicit affair between Mary and the mailman. The Norwegian Postal Service, also called Posten, said that the ad is meant to create awareness about Posten in a warm and humorous and surprising way. Unfortunately, the ad denies the virgin birth and therefore denies the deity of Christ. According to the article, it implies that Mary was unfaithful to Joseph, willingly inviting into her home any man who knocked on the door. The ad begins with an ancient postman delivering scrolls from Emperor Augustus to fellow citizens of Israel demanding they register for the census. When he happens upon the home of the Virgin Mary, sparks fly immediately between the beautiful teenage girl and the awestruck delivery man. Flash forward nine months later, 
Mary has given birth to the baby Jesus in the manger with a dark-haired Joseph at her side, holding a blonde-haired and blue-eyed baby Jesus. And the final scene, the final scene is of the, the mailman, the postman, trotting atop his donkey, donkey through a starry sky desert with a contented smile on his face. Again, according to the article, the post and ad comes at the same time that Netflix released a comedy, I don't know how this is funny, but a comedy special that portrays Jesus as a homosexual and Mary as a pothead. This has prompted some Christians to cancel their subscription to Netflix. Obviously, these news stories, to me, and I hope to you, these news stories sound absolutely horrific. I actually watched the, uh, the Norwegian Postal Service commercial, and it is worse, it is much worse than I have even described. It is absolutely blasphemous. I, cannot, I can't imagine bringing myself to endure a longer Netflix special. It really does sound special, that's for sure. Friends, these attacks on the virgin birth of Christ shouldn't surprise us. We should actually expect them in our culture. Just listen to the atheist Richard Dawkins. He says this, The virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles all freely used, are, are, are all freely used for religious propaganda. And they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. End quote. Richard Dawkins. So, so according to Richard Dawkins, if you believe in the virgin birth or any of the miracles of the Bible, you are unsophisticated and maybe even child, a child. Beloved, the facts surrounding the virgin birth of our Lord have been under attack since the very beginning. I would argue that this attack has been demonic in nature. It started when Cain struck the first fatal blow against his brother Abel. Satan grasped, believe me, beloved, when I tell you that Satan grasps, grasped, that is, the implication of God's pronouncement that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That is, his head. He understood it. And he's been attacking ever since. Ever since. He understood that God judged him in Genesis 3.15 for what he had done. And he also understood that God would win. You can also guarantee that Satan has and will continue to try to land a crushing blow to the Messiah and to the Messiah's people. But try as he might, he will only be able to, bru to bruise the, head, the heel, that is, the heel of the Son of God. The cross itself, the cross that we have been talking about this morning, the cross that our Lord Jesus went to, seemed like a crushing blow to Jesus, which would only result in a bruised heel. Now, I want to be clear. The person of Christ, the person of Christ, his humanity and his deity are the most attacked doctrines of the Bible. Absolutely, without a doubt, that if, that if Satan wants us to believe something less about our Lord Jesus, he wants us to believe, oh, that he was a great teacher, right? Or he wants us to believe that he was a, a great prophet. But he doesn't want us, he doesn't want the world to understand that he is fully God and fully man. Christ then had to be fully God and fully man to accomplish his redemptive work. He had to be fully God to pay the eternal penalty for our sins. Sinful man could never atone for his sins. He can never pay the penalty that is owed. See, God had to be fully human, or Christ had to be fully human, perfect humanity to be the adequate representative of man and to be the substitutionary sacrifice for man. He had to be both. He could never be less than fully God and at the same time fully man. 
the virgin conception. Now, I want to make sure that I, I say that correctly. The virgin conception of Christ allows then for the deity and the humanity of Christ. Therefore, the doctrine of the virgin conception is central to our Christian faith. If Jesus was not fully God and fully man, then he is no different than any other man who has ever lived. And we would be lost. We'd be lost. As I said earlier, to accomplish our redemption, Jesus had to be human. More specifically, he had to be a descendant of Adam and David. But he also had to be divine can't say that the virgin birth or the virgin conception and birth were the only possible means of bringing forth the God-man. I don't know, but I know that it was in God's plan to do it this way. And the virgin conception and birth absolutely proved that Jesus is fully God and fully man. A person who possessed both divine and human nature, natures existing in one body. Deity and perfect humanity, who has atoned for our sins and has re redeemed mankind. Put another way, the virgin conception signifies that Jesus is deity incarnate. God, God with us. God with us. Therefore, we see recorded by Matthew in these eight Verses. What we see recorded by Matthew in these eight verses is of utmost importance to our understanding of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and to our faith. Now, let me say before we start, this narrative may seem improbable to many. It, it does seem. Obviously, Richard Dawkins' quote shows that. Maybe even so, to some of you. Maybe some of you are doubting whether or not the Lord Jesus could have been born of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin. But just because it's not commonplace doesn't make it improbable. Everything about this world, if you think about it, is a miracle. We just see it. You see the sun rise and you think, that happens every day. Therefore, it's commonplace. But it's a miracle. He, he miraculously created everything in this world. And oh, by the way, remember the Holy Spirit? In Genesis chapter 1, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep. He was part of the creative process, and He's part of bringing forth the Lord Jesus. But He miraculously upholds this world by the word of his power. That's a, that's a miracle, beloved. That's a miracle, whether we grasp it or not. And just because we don't fully grasp the science of the virgin conception doesn't make it doubtful. Look at all we know and all we understand about normal conception. But does anyone really know all that happens when the male sperm unites with the female egg? Do you know? Do you understand it? I'm not talking about the physical interaction between the two. I'm talking about the miracle of life. Even scientists know whether they want to admit it or not, the, they, whether they want to admit it or not, that, that human life begins when the sperm unites with the egg. And yet we don't understand it completely. Ultimately, we have no idea. Let me ask you one question. What gives the sperm the impetus to race the others to unite with the egg? What, how does the fertilized egg know to travel to the female uterus and implant itself there? How does, this, how does this work? These are just basic questions. There are hundreds more that we cannot scientifically answer. The, on, the honest answer is the more we know, the less we truly understand. So why do people struggle with the virgin conception? It's, it's all miraculous. It's all miraculous. Unbelief is the only answer. Unbelief. 
You can clearly see the fingerprints of God on every conception and birth of every child. We are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Yet many people deny the truth of the virgin birth. How can you look at this world and not see the miracle? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. As Donald McLeod writes, the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. It stands on the threshold of the New Testament blatantly supernatural. Blatantly supernatural. Defying our rationalism. Informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself. And that if we find it offensive, that is the virgin birth, if we find this offensive, if we find that we can't believe it, there's absolutely no point in proceeding further. End quote. No point. If you can't believe the virgin birth, if you can't believe the miraculous birth, conception and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's absolutely no reason to go any further. So if you dare, let's proceed further in looking at this crucial narrative in which Matthew explains the events around the, surrounding the conception and birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, from Joseph and Mary's unique perspective. Let's look at the first explanation. The birth of Jesus explained. Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So he starts out, now the birth of Jesus Christ as follows. You, you really should understand that in the preceding verses, Matthew has just proven through the genealogies that Joseph is the, was the legal father of Jesus. Make sure you let that sink in, that Joseph was the legal father of Jesus, and therefore he proved that Jesus was the legal heir to the throne of David since Joseph was his legal father. Now the question is, why would I say and belabor legal father? Well, the biblical writers are incredibly careful to make this point. They carefully avoid any statements that Joseph was the physical father of the Lord Jesus. At times they quote others as saying, as calling Jesus the son of Joseph, but in each case that this happens, this this quote is coming from those who don't know him or are trying to disparage him. In Matthew 1.16, Matthew carefully states that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Here, what Matthew does is carefully points out that Jesus was conceived before Joseph and Mary came together. Now you may ask why I'm emphasizing this point. Well, let's keep going to answer that question. Look at your text. Verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Again, Matthew is incredibly careful in his wording. Now to understand this, we need to, and to fully comprehend what Matthew is saying, we need to know what, it's, what it is meant, by, what Matthew means by they, they were betrothed. We may be tempted, I know that I have been in the past, to equate betrothal with our engagement tradition. But this would be a huge mistake. In that culture, the betrothal was legally binding. According to Jewish marriage customs of the time, Joseph and Mary would have been legally married from the time of the betrothal. Let me give you a little background. The Old Testament, Old Testament and rabbinical writings distinguish two stages of Hebrew marriage. One is the betrothal where the marriage was legally tendered, usually through the giving of money or gifts to the bride's family. This financial consideration may have been used to help offset the loss of the bride to her family. It may have been also used to offset the cost of the wedding, which was generally a seven-day event where the bride's family hosted the wedding guests. Think of how much that would cost, right? We, 
today we have the you know three or four hour wedding and and it costs thousands of dollars but just think about seven days of a, of a celebration the the betrothal could also be used as even as insurance in case something went wrong with the marriage the second part of the marriage then was initiated by the wedding and culminated in the husband uniting with the wife under one roof for the sake of marriage. So there's two parts. These two events were separated by up to one full year. Could have been six months at the minimum and up to a full year. The betrothal makes then the marriage official, but the marriage is not consummated until the agreed-upon period had passed and the, and the wedding had happened and they came together under one roof. The betrothal made the marriage official because the two families would draw up a contract promising consummation of the marriage. This contract was seen in that society, in that culture, as binding. Therefore, if you violated the contract during the betrothal period, you violated the marriage vow. And you had to be divorced in an official sense. Now, this is all going to make sense as we go through the story. So therefore, therefore, the betrothal period was a period of testing for the bride and the groom. It was a probation to ensure the bride's virginity. There were no, as you know, there were no pregnancy tests during that day. So if the girl was pregnant, it would become apparent during that time. It would be become known that she had been unfaithful to her husband and to God. It's also a time to test the fidelity of both the husband and the wife to one another and to God. Because the, the husband was to take that time and spend time studying and praying and readying himself for marriage. If either were unfaithful or if there were problems, this period, this was a period in which there could, these problems could be worked out. But here's what we need to understand. The marriage was official in every other way. Therefore, they used the term husband and wife because the marriage was valid, though not consummated. Now, we should also say, to make sure you, we understand that there would have been very little, if any, social con contact between the man and the woman during the betrothal period, thus limiting opportunity for the man to be with intimate, intimately with the wife. The, the, the woman. Therefore, in this case, limited, limiting any opportunity for Joseph to be Jesus' physical father. Now, it was during this betrothal period that Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. According to Matthew, then, there was absolutely no question whether Joseph was the physical father. He was not. He was not. Joseph, according to Matthew, was a godly and righteous man who would not have violated God's standard. And Matthew makes this point very clearly later. So we've seen the first Matthew's first explanation of the events surrounding the conception and birth of our Lord. Let's look at the second one, the birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus examined. Birth of Jesus examined. Look at verse 19. Well, before, before I do that, what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit of background, take a few minutes, moments to discuss Joseph and Mary as people. And Joseph, according to Matthew, we've already mentioned it, was a righteous man, but we don't know a whole lot more about his background. He is described by a Greek term that can be translated carpenter or mason. He probably did both, right? Because in those days, if he built houses, he would have to know multiple tasks because the work was not specialized like we see today. There were no plumbers. There were no, I mean, they, they, they did everything. They, were, they, they, were, they had to be able to do it all. So Joseph was probably, he probably was, came from a poor family, and he was probably a very hardworking man. And according to Matthew, he was a righteous, godly, and faithful man. You might say that Joseph was a true Old Testament saint. Now, with Mary, we know a little bit more about her. Than Joseph. First, we know a little bit about her family. In John 19:25, uh, John describes and says that standing at the cross of Jesus were his mother, Mary, that is, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, 
and Mary Magdalene. Therefore, Mary, the mother of Jesus, had a sister, and she also had a cousin named Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. We also know that from, from Luke's genealogy that her father's name was Heli. But we don't know much more than that. History would tell us that she was probably a poor, hardworking, and quite young lady. As a matter of fact, she was a very godly young woman. We know from the, the book of Luke, we know that she was well-versed in the Scriptures. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 1, we'll see the parallel account in Luke 1. Look at verse 28. This is when, so, so she came in, this is when she's um, being told of the, of the virgin birth, of the, of the upcoming uh, pregnancy with Jesus. Uh, in, in verse 28, it says that she is called a favored or blessed one. In verse 30, it says that the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. After, after Mary hears that she will conceive and bear a son, she said in, in verse 34, How can this be since I am a virgin? I mean, so clearly she's saying, I want this is important for later, clearly she's saying, I am a virgin, having not been touched by man. Intimately, that is. The angel tells her that, that, that her that she tells her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and that the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And she tells her that what's going on with, with Elizabeth as well, saying that your relative Elizabeth in verse 36 has, been, has, con has also conceived a son in her old age and she is now going to have a child. And this child is going to be named John the Baptist, as we know. And after this, she gets up and goes to Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. In verse 45, Elizabeth says that Mary is blessed. The reason she's blessed is because she is believed. She is believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. The point that I want to make is, is what we see here with Mary is that she, has, she is a woman of great faith. She had to know, and we're going to see this even clear, more clearly in a moment, she had to know the great difficulty that she faced Yet she believed that God would care for her. God would care for her. I, I, can, I can't imagine, beloved, how, I mean, putting myself in her place and what's happening here, I can't imagine going through what she went through. And yet she, according to, according to Elizabeth, yet she believed what had been spoken to her by the Lord. She believed the promises. Elizabeth then must have been a great encouragement to her at this, in this time of trial. In 146, in, in Luke 146, Mary gives the Magnificat, which clearly shows that her heart and mind were saturated. I wish we had time to go through it. We're absolutely saturated with the Old Testament Scriptures. She was... A truly, she was truly a godly, godly, godly woman. So what we have here with Joseph and Mary are two uh, very young Old Testament saints. Mary may have even been as young as twelve, though. When you look, when you read her, the the passage in Luke, you find that she is incredibly mature, and she may have been she may have been slightly older because of this maturity. She has incredible wisdom and insight. Her Magnificat, which is what it's called in the Latin, but her that that passage is there's not a word in that passage that's not absolutely drenched with Old Testament understanding. Look at verse 19 then. Go to back to Matthew 119. It says, And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So Joseph finds out what Mary already knows. She is with child. She's pregnant. She's pregnant. And it's not his baby. But he does not know, he doesn't know that about, or about Mary's conversation with, 
the angel Gabriel. So imagine for a moment how much shock. I mean, this was absolutely shocking news. After all, I mean, what we have to understand is he must have known that Mary was a godly woman. He must have known that Mary was, was a righteous woman. And he didn't completely understand what was going on, but he didn't want to disgrace Mary because he must have known. Really, this is a testimony to, or a testament to Joseph and Mary's godliness. Joseph knew the quality of her character. Everyone must have known. There, there was no hiding it. He knew her righteous life. This was, let's just say, this was totally out of character for a godly woman such as Mary. But he also knew the dreadful consequences that Mary faced for becoming pregnant outside of wedlock. She faced even up to death for what she had supposedly done. According to Deuteronomy 22, the sinning woman could be dragged out of her father's house and stoned to death for playing the harlot. If she was found in the act of sinning, both offending parties could be stoned to death. That's how serious this was. And Mary, I want you to understand, I want this to sink in, Mary had no way, no way in this world to protect herself in this situation. She was wide open to this accusation. She, I mean, think about it. She couldn't announce to the town that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit with the Messiah. I mean, think about that. So Joseph... You know, he didn't want to raise a big stink. I mean, he, he still loved Mary, I'm sure. Certain of it. He wanted to preserve Mary's reputation as much as he could. I mean, she was done for as far as socially, right? I mean, you know, even if she wasn't stoned to death, she was. She, there's no way she could show her face anymore. So he decided to send her away secretly. He was a just man, and he didn't want to make her a public example. He was a just man, so he understood that he couldn't marry her considering, considering the situation. She had violated the law of God. She was, a, she was a lawbreaker. Therefore, he had to do what the law required. He knew he couldn't marry her. But he didn't want anything bad to happen to her, so he didn't want her to go through this public humiliation. So, in Joseph's day, there were two different ways to handle this. One is described in Deuteronomy 22, which is that the, she faced public humiliation and stoning for this infidelity. But at this time, in Joseph's time, Joseph and Mary's time in history, the Jewish authorities were more lax, and they allowed for Joseph to do away with Mary in a quiet fashion. The two parties could get together before two or three witnesses and write out a private bill of divorce. This could be a completely private and secret affair. Nobody had to know, so Mary would just go away. In other words, he would divorce her privately and send her away. Now, understand, it would have been a divorce because they were legally together. They were legally married. By the way, going back to what I said earlier, this made Joseph... Jesus' legal father. And that's crucial because Joseph had to be, or Jesus had to be the legal son of Joseph from conception. Otherwise, he could not have been the legal heir of the throne of David through Joseph. He would have been disqualified from being the Messiah. He would have been disqualified from fulfilling all the predicted actions of the Messiah, including his sacrificial death. It's amazing how God puts all this together. You see, Jesus had to be conceived with Joseph as his legal father. Though he was the legal father, he was not the physical father. And at this point, Joseph was nothing more than a shell-shocked young man who didn't know what to do and didn't appear to have any good choices. It didn't matter which way he went. He, he, he'd seem doomed. He couldn't bring himself to make Mary a public example. He couldn't bring himself to publicly shame her. And, and so he decided to put her away privately, but he had a hard time even doing that because he didn't want to. I mean, you can, you can hear their feel the agony here. 
would have made for a great drama. Faithful and righteous young man has waited patiently for the love of his life only to find out that she's been unfaithful to him. The dilemma is excruciating. It's agonizing. He asks himself, how can this be? He begs God for an answer, for a miracle. He loves her so much. She's such a devoted, righteous, virtuous woman. How could she do this to herself? Just imagine what he's thinking. How could she do this to us? How could she do this to me? You see, the young woman knows the truth, but she can't say anything to anyone. The truth is way too fantastic for anyone to believe. Then she goes to the only person who, in the world who may believe her. The angel had told her Elizabeth was miraculously pregnant at an old age. Elizabeth and Zacharias had been waiting for a baby for many years. You can only imagine Mary's emotions as she's traveling to see Elizabeth. She's, I'm sure she's joyful for Elizabeth. Oh, what joy and what sorrow. What am I to do? What am I to do? But I trust God's promises. Trust Him. Will she believe me? Will she believe that I'm carrying the Savior of the world in my womb? Like the angel said, We've been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years. We've been expecting him. Did the angel really say that this baby is the son of God? I know he is. I know he did. I know it'll be okay, but how? Just think of the emotion that's going through her mind. Joseph will never believe me. Will Elizabeth believe me? Joseph may not have believed her, but... That's when God gives him some information which will rock his entire world, change the entire direction of his life. God begins to reveal to Joseph the identity of the baby she carries in her womb. Look at Matthew 1.20. But when she had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Wow, talk about a dream you want to remember. I have trouble remembering my dreams, but that's one I'd want to remember. The child that has been conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. At that point, I can't imagine that Joseph completely understood what it meant. He needed a fuller, fuller understanding, leading us to, his, to Matthew's third explanation of the events surrounding Jesus' birth. The birth of Jesus elucidated. Made clear, that is. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Beloved, this is one of the more profound and power-packed statements in the New Testament. This is the hinge by which all of Old Testament and New Testament theology swings. Mary will bear a son, not just any son, just as the angel Gabriel announced to Mary in Luke 132, he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You shall call his name Jesus. In Hebrew, that's Yeshua or or Joshua. It means Yahweh will save. He told Joseph that she would bear a son. He He didn't say to you will be born a son. He said she will bear a son. Again, The writers of of Scripture are very clear. This is not the physical offspring of David. Greater than that, this Jesus will save his people from their sins. And just as Peter exclaims in Acts 4.12, and there is no salvation, or there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Beloved, this truth rings throughout the world. This truth rings throughout heaven and earth. There is not no other name that has been given among men. This distinction solely lies with Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. There's no other name by which you or I or anyone may be saved. There's no two ways to God. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. This honor has been bestowed on none other than, the, other than the one who has been born of the Holy Spirit, the God-man, the Lord Jesus. 
but the truth of the Messiah, who would take away the sins of the world, had been revealed in the Old Testament. It had been revealed in the Old Testament. This was nothing new. Let's look at Matthew's fourth explanation. The birth of Jesus equated. The birth of Jesus equated. Look at verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Matthew uses a quote from Isaiah 7.14 to show the expectation of one who would come and be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, he says that the virgin shall be with child. The Hebrew word in Isaiah 7.14 could be translated as a young woman of marriageable age. It doesn't necessarily have to carry the connotation of being a virgin having not been with a man intimately. But this shouldn't bother us for a couple of reasons. First, Matthew clearly uses the Greek word that, that means virgin, one who has never engaged in intercourse. Therefore, we can be assured that he meant to convey that Mary had not been intimate with a man. Now, the setting of Isaiah's prophet is pretty straightforward. King Ahaz was terrified that the kingdom of Judah might be destroyed by Syria and the northern tribes of Israel. <coughs> now, this is Isaiah 7.14, and I want to give you a quick context of this. Ahaz is in the south, the southern part of Israel, and he's afraid that, that the kingdom, the northern kingdom of tribes of Israel and, and Syria in the north are going to come down and destroy the kingly line. He's concerned about this. Now, what we have to understand is, is there may have been an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy in Ahaz and Isaiah's day. That, doesn't, that, that happens some. So quite often in prophecy, there's a near and far fulfillment. But what we have to understand is that the full and glorious fulfillment of, of what God had said to Isaiah and Isaiah to Ahaz was, would not come until much later. You see, what God is saying to Ahaz is that nothing's going to happen to the kingly line. Nothing's going to happen to the line of David. Because God had promised to protect the line of David and that one would be on his throne forever. Nothing's going to take that kingly line away. It's impossible. And here's the sign that this is, this is true. The virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He says, if you look forward, there will be a virgin child born, a virgin, virgin born child, that is, a child born of a virgin, and he will guarantee, he will guarantee that David's line will never be broken. According to Matthew, Jesus came into the world as the glorious and complete fulfillment of this prophecy given to Ahaz by Isaiah. Jesus is the one who fulfills this. Jesus is the glorious fulfillment of it. This fulfillment shows that God will keep his promise that the true son of David will sit on David's throne forever. And of course, if you study this, what you'll find is, is that this fulfills the promise God's promise in 2 Samuel 7 that the throne of David would be established forever. It's absolutely stunning. It's absolutely stunning that God would fulfill this prophecy in a young virgin named Mary who was betrothed to a godly and righteous young man named Joseph. Let's briefly look at the last explanation of the events surrounding the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus executed. The birth of Jesus executed. Look at verses 24 and 25. Look at 24. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Now we have no way of knowing where Mary was when Joseph awoke from his dream. We don't know. It... it, it it was probably later in her pregnancy because she was showing at this point. It was well known that she was pregnant. Can you imagine Joseph's joy at this incredible news? It must have felt like a weight, the weight of the world taken off his shoulders. Can you imagine the joy of seeing Mary, the love of his life, as she walked down the path toward him, head down, praying to God, full of emotion, 
quite possibly praying so hard with her eyes blurred with tears that she barely recognized him as he ran up to embrace her. Of course I'm filling in the white spaces. We can't know how this exactly played out. We can't know uh, how they came back together. But can you imagine the emotion? Can you imagine how they must have felt when they came back together? And at this point, we know, I mean, Matthew tells us that Joseph did as he was commanded. He was a righteous man. He obeyed God. He took Mary as his wife and he cared for her for the rest of his life. We don't even know much about the rest of his life. But we know that he did what he was told. We know that he obeyed God. We know that he was a righteous man and that he raised a family. It was not an easy life, as Scripture makes clear. But God blessed their marriage. And in verse 25, Matthew tells us something very important. He kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. First, he didn't know her intimately until after the birth of Jesus. Again, this clearly shows that Matthew's intention is to demonstrate that Mary had not known any man until after Jesus was born. She was a virgin, and Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit. She had not known Joseph or any other man. Second, the text infers that he didn't know her intimately until after the birth of Jesus. Later in Matthew 13, 55 and 56, it says, Matthew says, records that, that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Luke also documents Jesus' brothers in Acts 1, 12 and 14. Beloved, this debunks any notion that Mary, of Mary's perpetual virginity. She was a woman just like any other woman. Blessed, absolutely. Chosen for a very, very incredibly special role to play. But she was a woman like any other woman. And she had children, just like any other faithful wife would do, if they're able. Look at the last phrase. And Joseph called his name Jesus. Again, we see Joseph was a righteous man. He did what he was commanded to do. He was commanded to do so, and he did. And he perfectly followed through what he was told. He named him Jesus. Yahweh will save. And you can bet you better believe it that he believed that Yahweh saves. He believed what he what the name says. So the name means that is. This little baby was born to die for the sins of his people. This child was destined to go to the cross to bear the sins of his people. He was to be the perfect sacrifice. He was the deity and perfect humanity. This is the only way he could have ever atoned for our sin. Friends, this is the account of the birth of our Lord Jesus. Oh, there's much more we could try to understand. If you know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I hope pray this encourages your heart. This truly happened. It truly happened. Joseph and Mary are real people. The, the angel truly visited Mary. The Holy Spirit truly came upon her. The Lord Jesus is truly God, truly man. If you don't know Jesus, I hope you will consider what we've taught today. He's the most glorious person in the universe. He's fully man, but he's not merely a man. He's not merely even a God like the Greek gods, who are figments of man's imagination, right? 
completely different. Jesus is God, very God. He is the great I am. The Apostle John says it this way. The second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus, he calls the Word. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He dwelt here, he's in the beginning with God. But in verse 14, John 1, 14, he says this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Perfect man who died on the cross for our sins. A baby destined to hang on the cross for the sins of the world. Friends, Jesus. My kids always answer Jesus when I'd ask them theological questions. Probably, that probably embarrasses them now. Jesus, there is no other name by which you may be saved if you'd only believe. If you'd only believe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this morning. I do pray, Lord, as we've been on a roller coaster ride of emotion, thinking about Joseph and Mary, how the Lord, or how the Holy Spirit came upon her, her visiting Elizabeth, them coming back together. Most importantly, in all of this, you get all the glory. Your perfect timing, your perfect plan. Father, I pray and ask that we would just preach Christ, that we wouldn't shrink back from preaching the miracles of your word, Father, you miraculously created the world. You miraculously saved. Why should we be surprised at the miraculous birth of our Savior? Oh, Lord, may we preach the gospel so that others may come to know you, so that the lost would be saved. In Christ's name, amen.